Hey, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you. My name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at Trinity. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you afterwards. We can say hey to each other out in the lobby. Maybe it'd be nice to nice to know you're here. Um, thank you for coming this morning to church. Cold, rainy. How great is this weather? Uh, cold and rainy. Amen. Thanks be to God. We made it, everyone. We made it. Um, Hey, also, I have really great news for you. You probably aren't aware of this, but it is our birthday. Uh, it's our fifth birthday. I know, that's pretty cool. So uh, five years ago, yesterday, actually, Eastside held its first services. Ashley Matthews, along with a handful of people who are still here on staff, were part of that initial team. Uh, and over the years, God has just faithfully led us. Uh, he's, he's, he's guided us. He's brought us through changes and transitions. He's blessed us and enlarged us. And and just continues to to surprise us with his plan for Decatur and for East Atlanta through this church. And so we want to celebrate that. We don't do this every year, but we thought, you know, five's like a big deal. We'll do, we'll, so we're having cake afterwards. So we hope you'll stick around and have cake. And it's way better to have cake at 1230 than at 1030 when the people this morning had cake. Um, but it's cookie cake, so it's easy to eat standing up and it's very delicious. Uh, so I hope you'll join us for that afterwards and celebrate a little bit of birthday with one another. So uh, I'm going to be reading from the book of Second Timothy today. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, it's towards the end of your Bibles. Second Timothy. I'm going to read verses 8 to 13 from this chapter. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. And therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure, if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for, um, thank you that who you are. If we are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you that you are a faithful God. And that one thing we can be certain of as we gather today um, around this text, around this table, as brothers and sisters in this room, we can be certain of this. You are faithful, promise-keeping God. And so, Lord, we just pray that all of the um, all of the other things about life, all of the uncertainties, all of the um, just question marks that hang out there, that we would find just a deep inner peace and solidity that comes from the reminder that you are a faithful God. And so now we look to you to lead us through this, and we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and open our hearts, and help us to hear you, and help us to fight for our souls, and to contend for our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, so last week we began this look at uh, the, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the second letter that we have that he wrote to him. And so we call it the book of Second Timothy, but it was just a letter that this man wrote to his friend. Paul, at this time in his life, he's an old man. 
He's in prison. He's in Rome. He's actually about to be executed by the emperor Nero. He's at the end of his life. And his friend Timothy, who is hundreds of miles from there, is a young man, uh, really at the beginning of his life. And yet he's deeply discouraged. He's anxious and worried about things. He's worried about his friend Paul. He's probably worried about the ministry that he's doing. And, and Paul decides uh, that it's uh, necessary and good for him to pick up a pen and parchment and write a final letter. One of the great things I think about the library of scripture is that it has real things in it like this. Like it doesn't, it doesn't present human beings as people who just sort of skim across the surface of life and never get bothered by anything. But it reminds us that like that thing inside of you that gets really discouraged, uh, that feels like stalled out at times. Um, the thing that once had energy around a job or around a relationship or around a faith. That thing that once felt really alive and then sort of begins to feel cold and dead and like a lot of work. Um, that's a normal thing. That's part of human existence. That's what you and I do. We experience discouragement. Not all of us in here. Some, some of you in here really do have some sort of ingrained stoicism. You just sort of Teflon your way through life. And, and I think that's, that's wonderful. Others of us have more sort of pretend stoicism, but it's really just like a lid that we put over the fire that's inside of us. Um, and then others of us just are on constant roller coasters, invite everyone along for the ride. Uh, but, but regardless of who you are in that, I, I think we can all acknowledge that there's, there are just fundamental, uh, fundamental to being a human being is discouragement, is a sense of, of, of lostness, a sense of like, I don't, I don't know how to find my way forward. I don't know what to do next. And that's where Timothy finds himself. And, and so Paul decides to write him a letter to let him know there is a way forward. There is a way on the other side of this dark season you're in. This is not the final day and this is not the final word. And he wants him to know that. The word that he gives him is the word endure. He talks about his own endurance. He says, I endure things. He says, if we endure with Christ, he's wanting Timothy to know that there is a way forward in that word endurance is sort of this great encapsulation of what that way forward is. Now, I don't think that we are, and I don't think this is necessarily overly critical. I don't think that we're necessarily great at endurance today. I don't think it's our strong suit as a people. Um, I don't think it's unfair to say that the people who came before us endured better than us. Uh, just were able to just muscle through things, had higher pain thresholds, were able to be in, in uncomfortable situations for longer than most of us are today. We're in uh, instead a place that is always looking for quick and easy solutions. We are uh, looking to change maybe a little thing here and there and to find ourselves in a more comfortable position. In fact, uh, I, I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. Uh, Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve, which I really truly think should be required reading to be an American. I mean, I think it would totally change our country if everyone of us would pick this book up, especially if you happen to be in power in this country. But it's a book where Edwin Friedman, a Jewish psychologist who died in 1997, um, <clears throat> diagnoses what's going on with the world and the word word that he uses to diagnose what's wrong with us is chronic anxiety that we are a chronically anxious society which he he says is evidenced by five things the first thing is what he calls reactivity which is that instinct in us that no longer is proactively moving towards a thing but is always reacting at what's coming at us which is why we can spend an entire day circling as a people around a tweet, around a single look, around a single event that happened, and then go to bed and wake up and do the whole thing all over again with a brand new thing to all freak out about for a day. We do it every day. We are anxious people who are always reacting to whatever is happening. And the news media just feeds on this. And with reactivity comes what he calls the second thing, hurting. 
which we could also maybe call tribalism. It's that evolutionary biological instinct in us to find our people. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to find your people. I mean, the problem is, is that we're not content to just find a people with whom we can be comfortable. We must also delegitimize all other tribes. That's the problem, right? So it's not just enough that it's like my people and we feel good with one another, but also your ideology is dangerous and you're the problem with the world. It's actually a way of dehumanizing and delegitimizing all other tribes, all other herds, which leads to the third thing, blame displacement, which Friedman says the problem is, is that we're all willing to say that the problem is outside of us. It's not with me. I'm not a part of the problem. I'm a part of the solution. I don't know what's wrong with you. And so we look for all the ways that other people are failing to live up to what they should be doing or what they should be thinking. And we just are very adept at it, at finding blame. If you want to, uh, I mean, you can go and just read a comment thread and find a person just get torn to shreds for a grammatical error that all of us make all the time. It's just we're constantly looking for things to blame in other people. And with blame displacement comes the fourth thing which kind of has to do with where I'm going now, uh, which is the quick fix mentality. It's the idea that we just need to find easy solutions. Therefore, we have simple problems. This is the lie. There's a simple problem. It has a simple solution. And because of this, because of our hurting, because of our blame displacement, because of the quick fix mentality, we get the leaders that we deserve as a people. This is why we get the leaders we deserve, which is the fifth thing, non-well differentiated leaders, which is a, it's a heady term, but it's just the idea that we have leaders who are not able to stand on the outside of emotional storms, but instead they stir them, which is why we have populists running for president who stir fear around immigrants on one side and fear about corporations on the other side. It's the same thing, though. We're just stirring fear. We're blame shifting. We're making it about those bad people over there. And if we could just burn down the system and start from scratch or build a high wall, and that's why we are where we are. So this is the air you're breathing. This is the water you're swimming in. This is the chronically anxious system that we find ourselves in. And because of it, our ability to push through pain, our threshold for pain, our willingness to endure in hard times, it's not very high right now. Which is why Paul's words to Timothy matter so much right now, because he's giving us a framework for this. He's giving us a way of approaching life, a way of thinking about the world that's going to help you and me be different from everything else that's going on around us. You don't have to get pulled into the system. You don't have to get pulled into the anxiousness. Uh, Friedman writes this, and it's kind of a long quote. Well, here we have, a, we have, first of all, this is his definition of the quick fix mentality. He says, it's a low threshold for pain that constantly seeks symptom relief rather than fundamental change. So that's like, that's a great little summary. And then he goes on to say this, and just keep it on the screen for a bit. He says, the chronically anxious family or system or church or government country, the chronically, chronically anxious family is impatient. That same escapist thinking that leads us to displace blame also leads us to assume that the problem can be fixed in linear ways. The quick fix mentality is the other side of the coin of blame displacement. Both of them are a flight from challenge. Both of them are overly simplistic in their conception of life. Both of them are outwardly focused rather than inwardly focused. In fact, the amount of chronic anxiety that a family uh, is experiencing is inversely proportional to its capacity to endure pain. What makes chronically anxious families uh, anxiety. So chronic is not the pain, but the way it deals with pain. This is great. 
Uh, he says, anxiety is not something that one can will away except by numbing drugs or stuck together relationships. Therefore, chronically anxious families will seek out professionals who promise the most comfort, not those who offer the most opportunities for maturation. They will seek those professionals who help them avoid or reduce their pain as quickly as possible, not those who would encourage them to endure their pain in order to move steadfastly towards higher goals. The quick fix attitude, therefore, affects their choice of physicians, therapists, ministers, politicians, as they are drawn to the snake oil of quick fix elixirs that masquerade as technical solutions. So this, I think, is brilliant. Now, the thing about Friedman, I'm not here to preach the gospel of Edwin Friedman, because the thing that Friedman didn't do is he didn't actually give clear steps forward. Maybe it's because he died before the book was finished. Uh, I don't know. But Jesus offers clear steps forward. What Friedman did so well is he diagnosed the issue. He helps us understand the environment we're living in and why it feels the way it feels. And it's just good to remind ourselves. It's just good to remind ourselves. Not everyone feels like this. The whole world isn't like this. And throughout most of human history, it hasn't been like this. But this is where we find ourselves today. So what does it mean to be the faithful people of God, the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be disciples and apprentices to Jesus in this time, in this place, in this cultural moment? And Paul is going to give us a framework to help us know how we can, in the midst of discomfort and chaos and all sorts of stuff, endure and be strong and be calm and be patient and move forward. So I have three things I see in this text, and we'll just pull them out one at a time. The first is this. Paul lets us know that knowing the end is the power for endurance. Knowing the end. And what I mean by that specifically is knowing the end of the story. So the ironic thing about this letter is that Paul is the one who should be getting comfort, right? I mean, he's the guy who's sitting in prison. He's in his 60s. He's about to be beheaded uh, by Nero. He's covered in scars and wounds. He's had countless beatings, floggings, stonings. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. This guy has been through the worst of life, and yet he's the one who's buoyant. He's the one that has uh, an energy and an encouragement from which to draw that he can give to his discouraged um, spiritual son hundreds of miles away. He says, I am chained like a criminal. I am chained as though I were a criminal. And you can just think about people that we all uh, you know, like someone like Nelson Mandela, um, you know, or Dr. King, you know, sitting in a Birmingham jail or a Selma jail, you know, just chained like an undeserving, doesn't belong there, hasn't done anything wrong, and yet is sitting in prison, uh, wrapped in chains. He goes, I'm chained like a criminal, but then he leans forward and he says, but the word of God is not in chains. And it's just this moment of defiance, this beautiful, brilliant moment where he says, you know what, they can put chains around me, they can cut off my head, they can do all sorts of things, but do you know what cannot be stopped? Do you know what will not end? It's the power of God through the word of God and the gospel. It cannot be chained, it cannot be stopped. In other words, he's saying, I know the end, and there's an inevitability to the end, which is that God wins in the end. There's an inevitability to it. And so in this sort of defiant moment, he's like, they have chains around me. It doesn't really matter to me. It's not the last word. I don't really care it, to be honest, because I know that while there are chains on my wrist, the word of God itself cannot be contained. It cannot be uh, stopped. Do you know what that means? I mean, what it means is that you don't actually have to live a life where you're constantly worried about whether or not it's going to work out. 
That's what it means. And, and that, I mean, as, uh, as Atlanta sports fans, we all have had in the last week, but it, it's not going to work out in that, in that forever. Probably it will never work out for us. Um, but, but as Christians, as, pe- as people, we can know that it will work, that it does, that it does in the end. And therefore there's just like a, there's just like a, so whatness to it, which is, I love, you know, Paul's he's in, he's in the heart of the empire in the heart of the empire, in a prison, while Christians are being persecuted and all sorts of stuff, in the heart of the empire, he just says, I have chains, but you know it doesn't matter because God's word is not chained. There's just a so, you just, you don't have to give in to the wringing of the hands and the worrying about all of it. It's like, so what? So what? What Beto, Beto O'Rourke said this week about take, so what? So what? It doesn't matter. I know how the story ends. I know what the last word is. I'm not threatened by it. I'm not touchy. I don't care that much. I know how this thing ends. And so I can lean instead into the wisdom of Jesus, into the wisdom of my, my teacher who says, seek first the kingdom. I mean, I, I want to be on the right side of history. That's a big thing for us these days. And everyone's always telling us like, who's going to be on the right and wrong side of history. And we all want to be on the right side of history, right? I, I want to be on the right side of history too. Do you know how I know that I'm on the right side of history? Because in the end, the last thing standing is the kingdom of God. And so if I just, if I don't give in to the kingdoms of this world, I don't care about political platforms. I don't, I don't swear allegiance to parties. I don't swear allegiance to countries. I swear allegiance to a kingdom of God. That is my first and prime thing. And as I lean into that and care about that, it actually helps to make sense about how to navigate this very polarizing and divisive world that we live in. But I don't have to get sucked into it. I don't have to become a person that becomes a pawn in it. Instead, I'm just able to swear allegiance to the final thing because because the word of God is not in chains. The gospel does not get contained. It continues to push forward. It will achieve its end. It will bring about the end for which it was purposed. And so having that is actually a source of power. You know, even as I think about the things that, you know, throughout the week that I'm confronted with, as I, as I read the news, as I, you know, whatever it is, as I hear a terrible story about something that's going on in a person's life, there's just a, a sense like, yes, that is, that, that is true and that is hard. And yet I know, I know what is the end. And knowing the end gives power. It gives a resiliency. It gives an unflappableness to it. So Paul says, if you know the end, there's a power for endurance in that. And the second thing he says is that if we learn to remember, then we will have the skills for endurance. Remember. It's how he begins the, uh, the, the, the passage, actually. He says, remember Jesus Christ uh, of the son of David, risen from the dead. Um, I, um, I, love, I love just the, the, the po- poetic beauty of this because he's he's in he's in the heart of the empire at this point and his declaration here about what the gospel is like remember jesus christ of the line of david risen from the dead this is my gospel um he's actually making in that a, a loaded political statement and this is why because the gospel according to paul is that the lines of the king's you know, all the rulers, the lines of the kings have come down and have found their point in Jesus of Nazareth. And so the king that the, that the world had been waiting for has come and the empire killed him. And then he came back to life. It's just this loaded, charged political statement, but that in the end, even though I am sitting in a dungeon right now and I will lose my head, the kingdom of God has won in triumph. The empire cannot win. The powers of this world be as strong as they are. Is not enough, cannot possibly win the day. 
So he says, I want you to remember this. I need you to put this in front of your mind. I need it to stay in before you at all times. This is the ultimate thing. Uh, I was at a clergy conference this last week with um, priests and deacons and from all over our diocese. And, and one of the things that, that Trinity is a part of is we're part of a family of churches, which is called a diocese, that actually is a national family. We have churches in California and New York and Chicago and Texas and St. Louis and Georgia and Florida and all over. Anyway, we're all together in California this week, and our bishop was there, and it was so great. And he's like, you need to remember this. The church are the, church are the brokers of ultimate things. The church is the broker of ultimate things. So the thing that we actually remind ourselves of and speak of, this is the ultimate thing. And all these other things, and there's lots of other things. You're going to walk out of the door with all these things coming at you, and they're going to say, I'm an ultimate thing. I'm an ultimate thing. The church is the brokers of ultimate things. So he says, you got to remember that. Now, what is remembrance? Remembrance is the decision, what I'm going to set before the mind. That's what remembrance is. The decision, what I'm going to place before uh, my mind. And so the question, therefore, is how are you remembering? How are you remembering ultimate things? Are you remembering ultimate things? Like, is this your plan to remember ultimate things? Like, I come to church a few times a month. That's my plan to remember ultimate things. Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, wrote a wonderful book called You Are What You Love. I think we sell it in our bookstore. Um, he talks in it at length about the idea of liturgies. And he says in it, we're all liturgical people. And you'd say, well, ah, not really. I'm more of like sort of a low church person. And he's like, no, liturgy are just the practices that are forming you. It's the things that you're choosing to do again and again that are forming you and reminding you of what story you're in. And so I mean, everything from the kind of breakfast you eat to like where you shop to like the stories you listen to, the news you read, the music you listen to, the conversations you have, the kind of relationships you're in, what you do with your neighborhood. These are all liturgical practices. They're all ways of reminding you of what is ultimate in, in your life. And of course, the challenge in that is to just consider like, what are your liturgies? What are the things you do every day? What are the just predictable things that you know every day these nine things, these four things are going to happen every single day. And then how are, what are they remind, what story are they placing me in? What ultimate thing are they putting me in? Because if you aren't active, if you aren't actively remembering, they're going to place you somewhere. They always do. Um, one of the things that I developed years ago was, um, I, I developed a rule of life and I, a rule of life is as old as the church. It's, it's a, it's a set of practices that live outside of myself and outside of my circumstances that essentially serves as my governor. It's a thing that makes decisions for me when I'm not totally sure. And it's very simple. It's very basic. But part of my rule of life is certain rhythms that I try to live in every single week and every single day. One of my rhythms that I do, a weekly rhythm, is I, as I, I take a day off every week. It's called Sabbath. I didn't come up with this. This wasn't like a novel idea. Sabbath goes all the way back to the very first page of your Bible. It's this idea that God actually intended creation to exist with both work and rest intentionally put side by side. So the word Shabbat which is where we get the word Sabbath from, literally means cease. It just means cease. Stop. Stop what you're doing. And so it's a day for you to stop the things that you're doing that feel so important and instead to rest, to play, to rejoice, to pray, to sleep. Um, it's a day where we make waffles in my house. It's a day where you go on walks. It's a day where you take a nap. Uh, it's a day where I work outside because I don't work outside very much and it's fun for me or play music or whatever it is that's fun for you. It's a weekly rhythm for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is giving the children of Israel the Ten Commandments one final time before they cross over into the land. And in Deuteronomy 5, it says this, 
says uh, the fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath and keep it. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Keep it holy, meaning make it unlike every other day in your calendar. Make it a holy day. Why? This is great. Why? For you shall remember, he says, that you were slaves. For 400 years, the story of Israel had been brick making at the end of a whip. For 400 years, the, the identity of an Israelite was a person who made bricks, who lived up to quotas. Do some of you, do you have quotas you have to meet? Some of you do. Like the idea, like I either hit my quota or I don't. And if I don't, I get punished for it. For 400 years, my entire identity was how many bricks I made that day, how many bricks I made that week. And Moses says, I want there to be one day a week where you don't do any work and you remember, I am not the bricks I make. I am not the classes I'm teaching. I'm not the PhD work I'm in the middle of. I am not the houses I'm selling. I am not the sermons I'm preaching. I am not the people I'm leading. I am not the kids I am raising. I am a child of God who is meant to live in a rhythm of rest and work. And so I rejoice. I drink coffee throughout the day. And I, I celebrate that I, that I am not a brick maker. I am not a slave. It's a weekly rhythm for me. It's a way of reminding myself every week that actually the world continues to spin even when I stop checking email. It continues to go forward even when I don't have my phone in my pocket at all times. What are your rhythms? What are your daily rhythms? I talked about this last week, but daily rhythms are so important. Every day, I open my Bible. I put myself again in the story that I'm in. I open my hands. I say, come Holy Spirit, speak to me. I think about the previous day. I think about where I felt far from God and where I felt close to him. And I sort of connect the dots with him in conversation. I pray for my people. I pray for you all. I do it. I do it every day. I don't, I don't do it perfectly. I make mistakes along the way. What are your rhythms? What are you laying before your mind? Remembrance is the decision what I'm going to set before my mind again and again. It's so much easier to put something else before the mind. Netflix is easier. It just is. Netflix is easier. Instagram's easier. To remember to put these things in front of me. And finally, the third thing that Paul reminds us of, which is great, he says that resting in another's faithfulness is the peace for our imperfect endurance. Resting in another's faithfulness. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you know what that means? It, it means that, that you're not going to do this perfectly and you, you are going to faint along the way and you are going to grow discouraged and get sort of sucked down a hole. And um, there are going to be times where you feel like the choice is really clear in front of you and you're going to choose Netflix. And, 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 when, and when that happens, which you might, you might be like, that's like every day for me. When that happens, um, the gospel is that it is not ultimately up to you that Jesus Christ is the faithful one for you. And because of that, because the, at the heart of God's character is faithfulness, promise-keeping, at the heart of God's character is an assurance that he will achieve the things he set out, there is peace in that. There's not condemnation in it. That this is not ultimately up to you. The pressure's off in that sense. And that's great news. The pressure's off. It's not ultimately up to you to white-knuckle your way, to muscle your way into the kingdom of God. That's not what this is about. But rather, it's an opportunity for you to cooperate with what God is already up to and what he will accomplish. And because of that, you're just invited to just take a deep breath and go, it's not up to me. It's not up to me. And because of that, I can just, I can just take the next right step into enduring through hardship, through pain, 
through difficulty, through stalling out. Now you might say, well, what about that other one? If you deny him, he will deny you. I don't like that one. And, and, I, and you know, I understand why. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge that what Paul is doing there is he is reminding us of something that we see in the whole of Scripture, which is that God honors your self-will. He will honor your free will. And there's a big difference, as N.T. Wright said, there's a big difference between denying God and being faithless. He's like, one, in one sense, you sort of are blown off the deck of a boat by a hurricane, and the other, you jump off the deck of a, of a boat and swim far away. There's a difference between wanting space from God and demanding it and just actually kind of getting swept up in life. There's a difference between the two, and, and only you know really what you're after and what you want. I, I can't speak for you, but I just want to remind you, God will honor your self-will. He will let you have what you want. He will let you have it. And if you're like, I don't want you, I want space from you, I want to be away from you, he will give you that. And Ashley reminded us a couple of weeks ago, like that actually has cosmic implications even. God will honor your decisions. He will let you have it. But if you're here today and you're feeling like, I want, I want to be closer to him, but I'm just not. I just, I wish I were. I just want to say like, I have good news for you. Like God is, God is faithful. He's promise keeping. He has not given up on you. He will not abandon you. He is faithful when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. He has not denied you. He has not forsaken you. He's invited you again. And we come in a minute, we confess our sins, we come in a minute to this table, and we let God feed us. And all of them are just acts, they're remembrances, they're, they're habits that we form that remind us what story we're in and who is the one feeding us, who is the one forgiving us, who is the one calling us, equipping us, and empowering us. In fact, I thought it would be really cool to, to end today by doing something that's not in, all, in any way novel. Um, we're going to say the creed with one another. And Anglican churches have been saying the creed at the end of a sermon, well, the whole time we've been a church. And we don't always do it here, but I think it's good because what the creed is, the gift of the creed, is that it is a reminder of ultimate things. It's uh, the fathers of the church put these things down to remind the people this is what is ultimately true. And so I want to invite you to, to stand up. We're going to say this together. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much. And God bless you. Have a great week.